Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome to everybody here live at the Hayek Auditorium. Uh, I want to welcome everybody who's watching online uh, on our streaming. Um, and I also want to welcome people who may be following along on Twitter, watching people's comments. And anybody who wants to, uh, during the course of the event, can also send questions or comments uh, via Twitter. Please use the hashtag CatoCEF. Uh, that's CatoCEF. I'll be monitoring on my phone, and I hope um, uh, I'll be able to take some questions and comments from people who are watching online uh, that way. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey. I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. I also uh, am prepared to claim a fair amount of credit for the book we'll be discussing today, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. And I claim credit because I, I have a blurb on there, which is uh, the most important blurb on the book, is what I've been told. And also because we've actually, uh, when Brian was working on this, when it was still uh, um, a miasma of ideas in his head, we actually had an event here called Is College Worth It? This was about four years ago, where a lot of these things that were sort of formative, he, he discussed. So we've been sort of on the road with this book for a long time. The other thing, though, I will say is if things go south with the book, I totally think all the money we spend on the education system is an excellent use of that money. Um, so now uh, I will introduce the author, and then I'll introduce our respondent. Uh, the author, in case you don't know, is Brian Kaplan, right here. Uh, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University and a Cato adjunct scholar. His work has been published in numerous scholarly journals. I won't give them all, but there's just a few. Uh, the American Economic Review, the Economic Journal, the Journal of Law and Economics, and Social Science Quarterly. Uh, his book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies, was published by Princeton University Press in 2007 and named the best political book this year uh, by the New York Times. He's also author of the book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, Why Being a Great Parent is Less Work and More Fun Than You Think, which was published in 2011. Now, on my right, we have Kevin Carey. He should be familiar to many of you, if for no other reason than he's spoken here at Cato on a few occasions uh, at education events. Uh, he is the Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at New America and directs the Education Policy Program. He writes regularly for The Upshot at the New York Times, has written feature articles for Wired, The New Republic, and many other publications. Uh, he's a contributing writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education and edits the annual Washington Monthly College Guide. His book, The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere, was published by Riverhead in 2015. Prior to joining New America, uh, he worked as the policy director of education sector and as an analyst at the Education Trust and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He's also worked for the Indiana Senate Finance Committee and as Indiana's Assistant State Budget Director. He has a bachelor's degree from Binghamton University and a master's degree from Ohio State University. So here's the way things are going to go today. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and Brian will give a presentation on his arguments and of course his evidence for the book so that you get a good overview of, of what this book contains, what it's all about. Uh, Kevin will give his response to what's in the book and then uh, we will go to Q&A, and I like to do Q&A a little differently because, frankly, I've given up on trying to fight you people who, <laughs> instead of just asking a question, want to give a comment. 
Um, and so I am more than happy if anybody wants to give a comment, as long as it is relatively short. I'll cut you off if it's short or if it's uncivil. But if you have something you want to say, certainly feel free to say it. I'll shut you off when I think that you've gone too long. And then, yeah, well, it's not. It is Cato, but we're not anarchists. Um, so I'll be the one who shoots people down. But if you want me to, raise your hand and give me a signal, hey, shout this person down. Um, but, but this way, everybody, not everybody's going to get a chance to say something. But, but if you have something that you really want to say, we don't have to go through the charade of you say what you want to say, and then you end it with a question mark. Um, and then if you, even if you want to respond to something another audience member said, as long as you do it quickly and civilly, then I am all for that. And speaking of quick and civil, I now hand it over to Brian Kaplan. All right, uh, so thanks so much. Uh, you didn't mention my most important credential, which is that in 1991, I was a Cato intern. All right, <laughs> all right so pleasure to be back. All right, so let's just start with what all of you have probably heard so many times, you can't even remember when you first heard it. It's the normal view of education. And it just says that we should have more and better education, obviously. This kind of thing that you'll hear from politicians. Imagine a politician saying, we've got way too much education, let's have less. Right? No one in any major debate is going to want to say something like this. This is what your parents have been telling you, what your teachers have been telling you. And this is also an odd case because this is a rare instance where economists and the public actually agree. My first book, The Myth of Rational Voter, was all about the ways in which economists and the public disagree. Uh, here's a case, actually, where there's a meeting in the minds. And the public, of course, thinks that we're not investing enough in education. If you ask economists, what should we do? What is the best investment that we can make in our economy? More education. Uh, where do economists get this? Uh, well, a lot of it comes from what are called return to education calculations. This is basically just saying, let's think about education as being like investing in an oil well and, or, or buying a bond. And we'll then go and evaluate all of them using exactly the same metrics that you would put into a prospectus. Right? And for many economists, this uh, is really proof. It, you know, like it, it is clear proof that education does what they call building human capital, namely that education is transforming unskilled youths into skilled adults. And that is the key thing that it does. And that explains why educated workers make more money. Uh, which brings us to the big puzzle. When you actually experience education, how many people here have ever experienced education firsthand? Yes, yes. Now, over 10 years, how many said over 10 years of education? Yes, almost everyone said over 10 years. Uh, it is hard not to notice that most classes teach no job skills. Most of the classes you've been in, if you think back, well, what did they teach me that I've ever used after the final exam? Hmm, uh, well, what would that be? It's hard. All right, so think about this. What fraction of US jobs ever use knowledge of history? Right? Like if you didn't know your history, then you couldn't do the job. Uh, very few. But higher mathematics. You know, even out of people going to calculus, uh, in the book I talk about evidence that only about 20% of them actually even use algebra or geometry on the job, much less the highest level of mathematics they attained. And yet higher mathematics is required for almost everyone for high school graduation. And then of course, you know, music and art. Uh, when my sons were in fourth grade, they had three different required music classes. I called up and said, can they get out of one? No. All three music classes are absolutely required. If you don't like it, you can't be at the school. Right? Art. Uh, Shakespeare, you can go and learn English as it was spoken hundreds of years ago. So you can learn that wherefore means why, not where. Very important. Uh, or how about you know, foreign languages? Uh, in the book, I talk about the actual amount of foreign language uh, you know, acquisition that occurs according to people themselves. So if you just ask Americans, 
You know, uh, did you learn to speak a foreign language very well in school? Under 1% say yes. And this is a self-evaluation, so presumably they're even worse than they themselves claim to be. Right, and then you know, how many US jobs actually even require knowledge of foreign languages? And is it realistic to think that you could get someone who, is not, who did not speak it at home up to the level good enough to actually do it on the job? Probably not. Uh, Latin, we teach dead foreign languages in school still. There was actually, you know, Latin almost died out and it's been revived and it's back again. All right, so very important to know Latin. All right, uh, you might remember going through the education system. Occasionally there's a smart aleck in the back of the room. We have a few people in the back of the room. Perhaps they are our smart alecks. And uh, saying something like, so, Mr. Trigonometry teacher, what does this have to do with real life? All right, and the trigonometry teacher will normally say, oh, you'll see, you'll see. All right, well, have you seen? All right, so, you know, I, arc, arc hyperbolic tangent comes up a lot. All right, so all this seems awfully strange. Uh, now, you might say, what's so strange about the fact that schools are teaching kids a lot of stuff they don't need to know? Here's what's strange. Employers care. Employers actually value this material, at least in the sense that if you don't have the required coursework, then they are considerably less interested in hiring you for a well-paid job. Right? You could be one Aristotle class short of graduation, and still this can be a great roadblock to your career, even though the Nicomachean ethics are never going to come up on the job, right? or they might be a hindrance to performing your job duties. All right, so what's going on? Why in the world would employers pay a large premium to people who study subjects that are unre unrelated to their work? Right, which brings us to the signaling explanation. Easy to explain all these facts, this gap between learning and earning, using what is called the signaling model of education. Uh, so the main idea of this model, which is not original to me, and Michael Spence got a Nobel Prize for it uh, you know, quite a, a while back, is this. So sure, some schooling raises your productivity, the literacy, the numeracy. I'm not questioning that. My critics often try to put words into my mouth and say that I am, but no, totally not questioning that literacy and numeracy are useful skills. Some schooling raises your productivity, but a lot. A lot of it, is, it seems to be just hoop, hoop jumping to show off or signal desirable traits. Traits like not just intelligence, but you know, work ethic and also conformity. Just saying, look, if you say, I have to be in school for four years, fine, I'll do four years. Uh, the key assumptions of these models come down to this. First of all, you have to have some hard to observe differences. You can't just look at a person and instantly know how good of a worker will this person be. You certainly just can't ask them, are you a good worker? Because then, if someone's looking to get a job, well, yeah, I'm the best worker, best you've ever seen. Hire me, totally. All right, so it's hard to observe. It's hard to look into someone's soul and know how good, of a, good they are as a worker. Uh, secondly, you need the differences to correlate with something observable, such as grades or diplomas. So there has to be something that is observable that correlates with the thing that you really care about. The correlation can be imperfect, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, all, but you, there needs to be some relationship between them on average. Right? And then finally, what we need is for the higher productivity workers to have lower costs. These could be lower costs in money, could be lower costs in time, could be lower costs in pain of performing the observable activity. So as long as the better workers say don't mind doing four years in school as much as the people who aren't such good workers, then going and completing those four years does signal that you are one of the better workers. Uh, so, so in signaling models, the market rewards people show their stuff, even if the display itself is wasteful. So even if the employer places no direct value on your knowledge of Aristotle, still your knowledge of Aristotle can be a sign of employability. It can convince, certify your employability, right? even though it is not in itself directly valued. All right, which brings us to the ubiquity of useless education. Uh, the strongest reason of all to believe in the power signaling, and I will say that 
I mean, I have believed in something like signaling for as long as I can remember. Even when I was in kindergarten, I said, something's wrong. Something strange is going on. Everyone says I need to do well in this stuff to succeed in life, and that seems true, but it doesn't seem like I'm ever going to know this stuff again. Now, I'm not claiming that I, that I independently could, was able to come up with a model, but something seemed wrong from an early age to me, and it's never stopped seeming wrong in the 41 years I've been in the education industry. All right, so I say the strongest reason to believe in the power of signaling is just to look at the curriculum, to see what's going on. So in the book, I actually go and collect the best data we've got. So in the US, only about 30% of high school course hours are spent on English and math. Then you got over 40% on arts, foreign language, history, social studies. All right, so that's kind of weird because those latter subjects don't seem like they're going to lead, lead, lead many places. And again, you may say, well, I still like them. Yeah, but why do employers care about what you like? Why don't they only care about what actually is useful for them? Uh, we can see similar patterns for US college majors. So I say you know, less than 25% of graduates have majors that are credibly vocational. Uh, you know, these, these are ones where if you were to say it aloud without, you know, without smirking, without, without breaking a smile, you know, like, yeah, archaeology is really going to open a lot of doors to useful jobs, right? You, what can you be with an, with an archaeology? You could be an archaeology professor. Maybe you could be a curator of an archaeology museum. All right, now what are we left with? Not very much. All right. Uh, engineers are about 5%. So out of all the different kinds of engineers, the engineers, there's only about 5% of majors. So sure, they're there. But it's actually a very rare major. All right. Then in the book, I go into measured learning. So don't, instead of just looking at the inputs, how much time people are spending in different things, see what people know. Now, the usual way that education researchers measure knowledge is by looking at things like final exams or standardized tests that are given at the end of a year or at the end of a degree program. But this is not really what we want to know. What we want to know is how much do adults know, right? Because, of course, generally you're not working until you're an adult. And there's no reason for an employer to pay you for what you used to know. They want to pay you for what you currently know, right? Who cares about what you used to know? That's not important. What's important is what you actually know today. So what I, tried, what, what I wound up doing is tracking down all the tests that I could of adult knowledge. Now, this is not exactly a measure of what people learn in school. But all I'll say is that everything, everybody, everything people know sets an upper bound on how much they could have learned in school. In other words, if everything you know you learned in school, then everything you know you learned in school. Right, so you can't have learned more than that in school. All right, so uh, in the book I go over all this evidence. So researchers measure adult literacy, numeracy, knowledge of civics, history, science, and foreign languages find shockingly low scores. How shocking, you can read the book. All right, uh, then the handsome rewards of useless education. This ubiquity of useless education would not be at all puzzling if the market rewarded education poorly. So if you went and studied something completely useless, or you just went to school and didn't learn anything, and then you go and try to get a job, and employers say, hmm, so what did you study? Archaeology? Well, this ain't no archaeology firm here. Uh, what do you know? Nothing? All right, well, then, then, uh, just, you know, then, then we're not interested. If this were employer's attitude, then great. You know, then, then the world makes sense. It's just a, you know, another case where a nonprofit is dysfunctional and a story. But at least in the US, the market rewards education very well. And actually, like, you know, at least the U.S. is close to the, uh, like, like if you were to rank countries by how lucrative education is, the U.S. is near the top of the world in terms of how much employers actually pay for education. Uh, now, you may say, well, but aren't there a lot of other reasons why educated people make, make, might make more money other than their education? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so in the book, I try to go through all of the adjustments that you might think ought to be made and then come up with an adjusted number. So in the end, it says, you know, it remains true that the market rewards education well after making an array of adjustments. And if you want to talk, well, which ones did you do? Well, you read the book, or we can talk about it in the Q&A. 
Um, you know, so it is, you know, it is true that the, you know, that, you know, the true effect of education is smaller than it superficially looks. When you see that college graduates make 73% more than high school graduates, it is not true that all 73% is caused by the education. Although I will tell you that there are quite a few education economists who think that it is all 73% caused. And you're like, really? How can they believe that? Well, I have a section on why they're wrong, but they are smart. And they have tried to, you know, they have marshaled a lot of evidence. So part of what I did here is say, um, like, they're really clever, but they're ignoring some much more obvious, some obvious things. All right. So anyway, what's nice about signaling is that it's a very elegant way to reconcile research on learning with research on earning and say the psychologist and the economist are both right within their own sphere. The psychologists have correctly analyzed what's going on with, learn with learning. The economists have correctly analyzed what's going on with earning. And signaling allows both groups to actually be correct. You don't actually have to take a side. And the, so the real mistake is people will say, well, they're not learning much, so it can't pay much. Wrong. And the other people saying, well, they get paid so much that they must be learning a lot. Also wrong. Signaling is the way that you can make everything make sense. All right. Um, now, this is where I'm going to convince everyone here that you already believe in signaling. All right, it's already in you. It, uh, as long as you've been in school for a lot of years, you know this already, you best, but you may not know it yet. All right, so you might be signaling if you bother to enroll or pay tuition. How so? Well, if you suppose you think Princeton is the best school in the world. Uh, do you really, do you have to apply or be accepted? No. Do you have to pay any tuition to go there? No. Just move to Princeton and start attending classes. It is totally, and like, like, will you be stopped? No way. There's no, like, in, lar in larger classes, the rest of us no idea who's a student and who isn't a student. In smaller classes, still, you know, like, they don't really care. Or in fact, if you go to a professor and say, do you mind if I unofficially attend this class? I'm not really a student here. Most professors are touched. They get a little tear in their eye and say, you know, you, know, you want to learn what I have to teach? This has never happened before. God bless this day and God bless you, child. All right, something like that. All right. But there's just one little problem. At the end of four years of guerrilla education at Princeton, what do you not have? Yeah, you don't have the degree. Uh, which brings us to a nice dilemma. Would you rather have a Princeton education with no official record of you ever there? Or do you rather have an official record of being there without actually having gone there and gotten the education? Which one do you want? If you have to think about it for a little while, you believe in signaling. <laughs> because if you, you know, if you didn't believe in signaling, this would be a no-brainer. I mean, imagine you're stuck in a desert island, and you're like, so would I rather know how to build boats but not have a boat-building degree? Or do I want to have a boat-building degree but no knowledge of boats? On the island, you know for sure which one you want, and you don't have to think about it. I need to know how to build a boat. I don't need a piece of paper to survive. I need knowledge. On the other hand, when you are going and getting your education, it is very much up in the air as to which one is actually more important, the learning or the credential. Uh, another sign you might be signaling. If you worry about failing the final exam but not subsequently forgetting what you learned. How many people here have ever crammed for a final exam? The day of the exam is the one day of your life you really know the material pretty well. And then you stop thinking about it, and what happens to any knowledge that you stop using? You lose it. You forget it. Psychologists call this decay. It took me a while to find out what their word for it was, but you know, they studied decay. All right. Now, here's the thing. From the employer's point of view, does it matter whether you used to know something and then completely forgot it, or whether you just never learned in the first place? Well, in terms of ability to do something, it doesn't seem like it matters. But in terms of the signal it sends, it matters a lot. Someone who got an A-plus in trigonometry and then forgot it all still shows a bunch of good things about themselves. 
that someone who failed the class does not show. So even though neither of you possesses the, the trigonometric knowledge at the end, there's the big difference between the person who showed that when they put their mind to it, and they did put their mind to it, they learned it, and the other person who didn't. And of course, and it makes perfect sense for an employer to prefer the person who did well in their school, in their classes, even when the classes have been forgotten. Uh, another sign you might be signaling. If you don't think cheating is only cheating yourself, if you think the only thing going on in education is that you are building up skills, then cheating is totally pointless. You're just paying money to the school in order to not learn how to do anything, and the world will know you for the fraud that you are. On the other hand, if you think that signaling is important, you're hurting a lot of people besides yourself. You are hurting the employers who think that you're better than you really are. You're hurting your fellow students because you are diluting the value of their degree. So only signaling can really explain what the point is of trying to stop cheating, because it isn't just a matter of hurting the student himself. Uh, another sign you may be signaling. If you seek out easy A's, if you're looking around for a professor who will give you an A in exchange for little or no work, right, which almost every student does. If you go to the ratemyprofessor.com website, there is a ranking for easiness. Easiness is good. There is no ranking for relevance or amount of useful job skills taught on Rate My Professor. Right? The students are just looking to go and get certified. I, you know, this is an A student, he's great. And again, why, like, well, like, how does this make sense in terms of signaling? Well, the employer does not know that you had the easy professor. If you could go, go and find the easiest you know, like, like, you know, relativistic physics teacher on the planet and then get an A plus from him, employers don't know that he was the easiest, but they say, my God, A plus in relativistic physics. Whoa, you're a genius. Like, I sure am. Hired me to work in your finance firm now. All right. <laughs> All right. So anytime that students seem more focused on grades than on an actual acquisition of knowledge, another sign that actually you believe in, those students believe in signaling already. And if those students were once you or are you now, you believe in it now. Uh, last one. Uh, you rejoice when teachers cancel class. All right. So there was one time when I wanted to go to Singapore and I realized, you know, can I, can I get up to cancel four classes to do this? And early in semester, I told my students, right, look, I'm planning on taking this trip, but I don't want to cheat any one of their education. So if there's a single student in this class who asks, I will arrange for there to be a substitute teacher to make sure you get all the human capital you want. Anyone, anyone, anyone. No one wanted it. Again, because they all know that if I teach fewer classes, they have to know less material, and, then, and no employer will ever be the wiser. They don't know that I went to Singapore. Why would they? Now, what is wrong with signaling? What actually is the problem with signaling? Uh, so who cares if education builds human capital or just signals it? Uh, well, selfishly speaking, I say it doesn't make much difference. But from a social point of view, from a policy point of view, it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, how so? Uh, in signaling models, education actually has a negative externality. Now, if you have forgotten everything that you learned in econ, a negative externality is a bad side effect that you're imposing upon strangers. It is a way that you are actually hurting other people by doing what you're doing. Again, a classic example would be pollution. So you go and drive a polluting car. It's convenient for you. Sure, your air is a little bit worse, but hey, you get to drive there instead of walking. That's really good. But then there's a whole lot of other people find their air slightly worse. And, uh, and how many people are worrying about all those strangers whose air quality is a little bit worse? Probably very few people. Or of course, it doesn't have to be a physical harm. It could be that you go and paint your house purple and all your neighbors are upset, right? So you have done something that hurts them and bothers them. Or since this is Cato, you may have heard about rent seeking at some point, the idea of spending resources in order to grab resources for yourself, right? And in signaling, and in signaling models, education is really a kind of redistribution, all right? 
Now, a, uh, you know, a, a great analogy of this it just comes from standing up at a concert. So let's see, I think everyone here is seated. Now, suppose that one person here decided they wanted to see me better. You don't have a good enough view. What can that one person do? You, know, you, know, you can't stand only seeing this much. All right, so what, the, what can the one person do to see better? Unilaterally, stand up. All right, therefore it follows that if everyone stands up, everyone can see me better, right? Wrong, that's not true, right? This is a classic example of the fallacy of composition. And in signaling models, education works the same way. One person gets more education, that one person improves their career, spot, career prospects. But if everyone gets more education, what do we get? We don't, we don't get a world where everyone gets great jobs. Instead, we get a world of what's called credential inflation, a world where you need more education to be considered worthy of getting any job. Right? And in the book, I talk about studies of how much credential inflation there's been since 1940. So rough estimate is about, you know, for, 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 a, for a given job, right now to get it, you need about three more years of education than you did in 1940. Almost a full additional degree is required. Jobs that before you get as a high school dropout, you now need a high school degree. Jobs before you need a high school degree, now you need a college degree. Jobs you get with a college degree, you now need a master's degree or a doctorate. Right? Now, isn't this just because the jobs are so much harder than they used to be? And you know, there has been some change, but an honest answer is no. Some jobs are harder than they used to be. Others are easier than they used to be. It's much easier to be a cashier than in the past. Before, a cashier might need to be able to do arithmetic by hand or in their head. Not so anymore. All right, so in signaling models, education actually has a negative externality. Every time you get education, you jump through more hoops. Everyone else looks worse by comparison. Notice this is very different from if you were, were getting a lot of skills. So if you're getting more skills in school, well, if everyone got more skilled, could everyone get a better job? Of course. If everyone, if everyone was a better worker, then there could be a better job for everybody. In fact, if you go and compare jobs in the modern world to jobs in a primitive society, you say almost all of us have a better job than, than, than we would have had as hunter-gatherers. So more skill does allow a general improvement of society. But more signaling, on the other hand, it, it really is a rat race. All right. Now I'm going to go over the you know, two big policy implications. There's a major policy implication, which I talk about a lot, because I'm almost the only person in the whole policy community saying this. Right? And one of the main things that inspires me to write a book is if there's a good idea that I think is orphaned. No one cares for it. No one loves this idea. And then I say, come here. Come here. You're my idea now. <laughs> and I love you. And I'm going to go and raise you up strong. All right. <laughs> All right. So drastically cut education spending. Or in other words, educational austerity, right? This is, a, this is a word I love, and I want to take it back from all the people who don't like it. Austerity is what I believe in, all right? So what's the idea? Well, if you think that, that by going and creating great and, and, uh, and wide access to education, we have sparked this horrible spiral of credential inflation, then the simplest way to go and, and crank the spiral back, right, to get credential deflation is to do the opposite and to reduce access. Right, which I know horrifies people, because people always think of the one good student that really benefited from it. But I say it's always important to remember all the people who are suffering from this. Think about it. Would you rather be a high school dropout today or in 1940? 1940, there's tons of great workers who didn't finish high school, so the stigma is just not that bad. Today, if you don't finish high school, the stigma against you is enormous. All right now, why focus on going and cutting rather than just going and raising the human capital dose in education? Well, here is mostly a public choice argument. I say, look, cutting is easy. Any dummy can cut spending. It's transparent. It's doable. You don't need to know a lot. You don't need to understand a lot. Cutting spending is, the simple, is a very simple thing. Meaningful reform, on the other hand, is very hard. 
Meaningful reform is very hard. Getting people to spend money better, it's not transparent. It's hard to get people to do it. There's a lot of pushback. And of course, there's a lot of debate about whether you've improved it or not. Right? So I say much better to focus on a transparent reform where we really clearly stop wasting taxpayer money rather than going and trying to redirect it in a, you know, in a better way, which is just very difficult. And again, you know, the, the way that I like to think about it is, you know, you know like, like in terms of common sense prudence, suppose it turns out that you've been paying your gardener for years and, and you realize, wow, you don't actually do anything here because my grass just doesn't grow very fast. And like, like so I, I was just confused. And he says, all right, fine, you caught me. I haven't been doing anything so far and I've taken all this money and I've given you no value for it. But from now on, I promise I am gonna start doing something really good for your garden. I have all these great plans I've, I, I've designed. So just keep paying me as much as you have been for a while and then, we'll, and then, I'll, I'll, and then it's gonna be great. And I would say, you know, common sense at this point says no. You've been ripping me off for all these years, so how about here's a different deal. You, uh, I stop paying you, you go and show me that you can go and do a much better job than you've been doing and make a bunch of improvements, and then in a couple of years I'll come back and see whether I'm satisfied with what you've been doing. And again, I think this is the, co the common sense way to handle your own money and common sense way to handle taxpayer money. Uh, now the minor policy implication is to make education much more vocational. So this is another idea where you know, I think there's very good evidence in, in its favor, but it just you know, gets very little love from most of the world, so I want to take this and make it my own. Uh, so there is very good evidence that, that at least currently kids don't do enough vocational, vocational education, that they would actually have a better career uh, for themselves on average if they would just do a bit more than they're doing. But more importantly, from a signaling point of view, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the social payoff for vocational education is better because the whole idea of vocational education is to train someone for a job. So I say it's moderately better for the student, but vastly better for taxpayers. And again, to get an idea of what I have in mind, if you look at the systems in Germany or Switzerland, uh, I think they, you know, they are far you know, better in a way, again, especially for kids who just don't like school, which is a lot of them, right? And it's not just because it's not being taught properly. There's just a lot of people who just don't like the experience. Uh, now, uh, I call the book The Case Against Education, and many people look at this and think that I'm just being a typical Philistine of an economist. Right now, I am an economist, but I'm actually a very weird economist. I'm someone who has a deep love for ideas and culture. I'm you know, a big fan of German opera and Shakespeare and foreign films and Russian literature. Right? This is the kind of stuff that I personally really enjoy. All right. Uh, so anyway, so, you know, there's, you know, anyway, there's many critics who will admit that Signal explains most of education's economic rewards, but they fault me for ignoring this humanist case for education. Now, this does bother me a bit when they say they've read the book, and I say, yeah, I had a whole chapter on this, so did you just not get to that chapter or not re read the table of contents? I, maybe I'm wrong, but I did talk about it. Don't say I don't talk, then I totally ignore it. I don't. All right. Anyway, this critique just says, look, doesn't education greatly enhance students' appreciation of ideas and culture and prepare them to be good citizens? So I got a whole chapter on this, and here's my quick answer. I share the humanist ideals wholeheartedly. Again, I'm probably more of a humanist than most people who say that they care about this stuff because I actually watch Shakespeare, right? <laughs> I actually listen to German opera. Many of the people who say this stuff is great actually just watch sports and like, and like Jay Leno and stuff like that. So I guess he's off the air, but yeah, whoever replaced him, I don't know. I don't, again, I'm too much of a high culture person to know. But anyway, <laughs> unless, I, unless you want me on your show, then, I, then I'm totally down. But anyway, uh, so I personally share these ideals. But I just say, like, actually existing education barely delivers. So, and like, in, like in, in order to, you know, for, uh, for education to, to serve this great civilizing mission, a mission that I'm fully, that I'm fully supportive of, so like, first of all, you need to have students that are at least have some curiosity. 
Like, you know, like you can't, like if you just go and ram Shakespeare down the throats of students who hate it, I don't think you've accomplished anything useful. You know, secondly, you've got to have teachers that are actually somewhat inspiring. Right? They don't have to be quite like Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society, but they can't be just a regular, boring, dry teacher. So I say, look, has anyone here ever gone to, gone to YouTube and just deliberately watched videos of average teachers? I'm just going to watch a teacher of average quality on YouTube for an hour. No one does that. Right? And that's because they're not, like the average teacher, they're nice and they're hardworking, but they're not inspiring. Right? And then, you know, finally, just, just you know, worthy content. When people talk about all the great civilizing, the great civilizing mission of education, I say, well, like, why don't we actually pay attention to some of the things that kids, that, that kids have to do? So when my, when my kids are in high school, they're making them, like, like, you know, make posters. Spanish teacher was not teaching Spanish, but she did say, get a piece of plywood and put a, and put a Latin American flag on it. And I'm like, this stuff is stupid. <laughs> This stuff is humiliating. How can you make my kids do this stuff? This is not civilizing them. This is making them hate everything that education is all about. So not good. All right, now, you know, what about citizenship? All right, now, if you go back to my first book, The Myth of Rational Voter, I have quite a bit on this. Uh, so there is actually good evidence that education modestly changed, changed the students' political views. A lot less than people would think because, again, there is self-selection. The kinds of people that go to school are not randomly selected. So the fact that gra college graduates have different beliefs than non-college graduates should be expected, even if college didn't change them at all. But anyway, so while there, there is good evidence that there are these moderate causal effects, the mechanism is mostly what's been called the big sort. It's not that, that the teachers are actually implanting different ideas in you, so much as being around other educated people socially isolates you. You're physically isolated when you're actually in school, and you are socially isolated to be around other people with similar educational levels when you're out of school. All right, and uh, you know, in the book I go, go into all the reason, reasons to think why, it, why this is the case, but here's one really simple one. If you go and look at the views of the average college graduate, the average college graduate uh, seems to be markedly more socially liberal, but at the same time markedly more economically conservative. Now based upon everything you've heard about college professors, are they trying to cause this package? How many college professors are trying to make their, stu make their students socially liberal but economically conservative? You know, maybe a few with George Mason, but uh, that's about it. All right. So it's you know, like basically sometimes students seem to agree more with their professors. Sometimes they actually seem to disagree more with their professors. And you know, like the simplest explanation I will say is that the professors just aren't that persuasive because they're not very inspiring. So um, you know, like one of the main, one of the most popular criticisms of education right now is that it's all brainwashing and it's terrible. And for, if that's your concern, I got some good news for you. Well, if it's brainwashing, it's highly ineffective brainwashing. I mean, you know, half the students don't even show up, and most of the ones who show up are checking their phones. So the brainwashing is actually far less than you, than, than you fear. All right. So anyway, so socially isolating college graduates just shift their views. But if it is caused by these peer effects, then you're automatically shifting the views of non-college non graduates in the opposite direction, right? Which is something that many people you know, have been thinking is relevant in the last election. College graduates have their own views. But because they're so socially isolated from non-college graduates, that really they split into two different political cultures. And what would the average view really look like if, the, if they had not been split in the first place? Right? So it might be that actually college graduates would think more like non-college graduates, but non-college graduates think more like college graduates. What would be the net social effect? At minimum, it's much more complicated than, than people think. All right, so I will uh, stop right here. Thanks a lot. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Neil, for having me. Thanks, Brian, for uh, writing this book, which I've had a 
chance to read over the last couple of weeks and, and reflect on. Thanks to all of you for coming and listening to this debate today. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about some of the areas uh, where Brian and I agree, um, and then probably pretty quickly get to the parts where we don't agree. I think that's my role here today. Um, and then I'm going to uh, sort of jumpstart the uh, moderation program by ending with the first question for Brian, which he can uh, take uh, or not. So, you know, there are definitely elements of uh, the case against education that I agree with and that I have made personally. Um, there is a lot of evidence out there that people don't really like to contend with that shows how our education system falls short. Um, I was actually not surprised <clears throat> in reading the book to discover that Brian is, like me, uh, an aficionado of the Federal National Assessment of Adult Literacy, which is a kind of obscure uh, federal study that's done like idiosyncratically once every decade or so. Um, and has now been expanded, the framework has been expanded internationally and consistently finds that a non-trivial number of uh, people who are college graduates are essentially uh, functionally illiterate or close to it. And a much larger percentage of people with college degrees, um, if you look at sort of what you need to do to get these scores, they're the kind of things that we would expect of high school graduates, not of college graduates. Um, this information is really nowhere in our collective concept of higher education in this country. Um, we are, in the United States of America, very used to being critical of our K-12 schools, um, but not our colleges and universities. Um, there's really a mythology and a belief system out there that um, colleges have standards, and anybody with a college diploma has learned certain things, maybe even some of the same things, and that's a standard that is consistently applied. Um, that's not true. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that that's true. Um, and the fact that we don't wrestle with the fact that it's not true, I think, is uh, very damaging to the, um, ultimately, to uh, our society and the cause of education. Um, and I, I absolutely, you know, uh, certainly signaling is a real thing. Um, I don't disagree with that. I don't think there are actually that many people who disagree with that, and we can get to that in a little while. But I'm actually quoted in the book making the point um, that colleges are able to charge uh, large rents because of the, they have a monopoly over certain kinds of credentials. I think that's a true fact. I think that's a big problem. Um, and so I am an advocate uh, for many changes in the way that we think about education. Um, and I mostly find myself in the position of being a critic of our education system. That said, um, there are, it really is a fundamental difference in perspective, uh, I think, between Brian and I and how we think about this evidence and what it means. I look at all of these facts and I see them in terms of opportunity. Um, I see lost opportunity in the past and in the present. Um, and I see future opportunity to do much better on behalf of students and citizens than we've been doing um, before. And ultimately, I think the fact that we fall down so often that, and that our education system doesn't work as well as it ought to um, is a couple of things. I think particularly here in the United States, the way that we've chosen to conduct education is really uh, ultimately implicated and shot through with uh, larger issues of inequality and discrimination that are kind of built into the way our society was founded and continues to govern itself today. Um, and second, I think, you know, maybe even more fundamentally, it's just very difficult to systematize a process of guiding intellectual development for many people all at the same time. This is in the scope of human history a very new aspiration that we should really try to educate most people or everyone. It's just not the way that most human societies have been organized. It wasn't the way that our society was organized. Um, it is a, a very ambitious 
aspiration. And, and I think because it's been long enough now that that aspiration has been sort of built into our civic identity, we don't really recognize how ambitious, how ambitious it is or how far we go to really realize it in, in any kind of legitimate way. But that doesn't mean that we can't do better. And that doesn't mean that we can't take all these opportunities. And so ultimately, when I see of all these problems, I see something vital to improve. And it seems like Brian sees something extraneous that we should discard or stop investing in from a public standpoint. In terms of the criticisms um, in the book that sort of lay out the evidence for why we should sort of see education this way, um, I think we have to make some like basic distinctions between criticisms of scope and criticisms of quality. Um, Brian says in the book, there really is no need for K-12 to teach history, social studies, art, music, or foreign languages, period, full stop. I almost like, uh, I feel like if I'm going to make that, most places I would just say that's ridiculous and walk away, but I think this is the place to maybe not say that. Um, <laughs> I although I do think it's, I do, I do think it's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's my temptation to just sort of stop there. I understand there's a chapter late in this book that kind of nods at the humanist perspective. But fundamentally, the way this argument is constructed is all around the connection between what you learn in school and the kind of skills and knowledge that you need to be productive in the labor market. Th th that is the foundation of the case against the education as Brian has presented it. Um, I, I just think this is a remarkably cramped and impoverished way of understanding what it means to be a person living at as, as a citizen, as a worker, as a spouse, as a fellow human being, to only think of education that way. Sure, it's true that you don't need to learn history in order to go to your job as a dental hygienist or as a welder or as an accountant or as a bus driver or as most of the jobs that we have in our society. Um, but I believe fundamentally that you cannot be um, a fully realized person nor a competent citizen if you don't understand history. And frankly, uh, I can't think of a political moment that more obviously illustrates the need for competent citizenry than the one that we are living in today. Um, there's a, another kind of vein of argumentation in the book that says that uh, most of what you learn in school you'll never need and you'll forget. I mean, sort of, but let's just kind of think about the logic of the way these things have to go. Um, once you at some point in your life make the choice to specialize in something, then you really narrow your learning. Um, at some point I specialized in being a policy analyst and a writer and I decided to work on education and I think about that every day and I've uh, learned some things and enough that I'm invited to come and talk about things like this and there are lots of other things that I learned in high school or college that I've forgotten since then. But that's just a natural consequence of specialization. You can't uh, like brain scan infants and decide ahead of time you're going to be a linguistics professor and you're going to be an astrophysicist and then therefore uh, construct an education system so that nobody learns anything that will retroactively seem unimportant. That's just not the way that like the world and educa our education system could work. Um, there's this, sort of this, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the book about the fact that people don't remember things that they learn in school. <laughs> So let me give you an example. Uh, you know, when I wrote the book that Neil mentioned, The End of College, uh, still on sale at Amazon, buy it now, um, I went and took an online class in genetics. Um, and I actually chose it because I don't know anything about genetics. This was a class, a freshman class that they give to students at MIT. Everyone has to take it at MIT. So MIT takes their freshman genetics class and just translates it into an online class. It's the same lectures, it's the same homework problems, it's the same final exam. 
So I work very hard because I kind of know that I need to do this for my book. Um, I take the final exam, I get a B, which felt pretty good to me as a non-MIT smart level person. Um, so when, they gave, when I took the exam almost five years ago, I got an 89. Um, if you gave me the exam right now, I would fail it because I've spent none of the last five years thinking about genetics at all. Um, that's not the case against education. That's just a description of how human cognition works. I, I mean, at one point in the book, they make a there's a parallel between uh, going to school and going to the gym. And, and you know, Brian notes, well, you know, if you, go to the, if you get yourself in shape and you th then stop exercising for a long period of time, you'll be out of shape. I mean, that's true. That's not the case against exercise. That's not the case against the way we organize exercise. It's not the case against going to the gym. So a lot of what seems like evidence, I think, is just kind of the obvious consequence of the way that our society is organized, the way we specialize, and the way that we choose to learn. Um, and you know, on the policy prescriptions, which really are not most of the book, um, but there is, you know, I, I will give the book a kind of credit in the sense that it definitely has the courage of its provocation. It really is the case against education. Um, at one point in talking about public funding for education, the book notes that we spend, I think, $1.1 trillion a year on education just in this country alone, which is more than we spend on national defense, um, which I think is a completely arbitrary and like meaningless comparison. National defense is one thing. Education is something else. They cost what they cost in some levels, depending on what we want from them. Um, but the book says, uh, you know, that our, I think it uses a word like lavish, correct me if I'm wrong, um, to describe the level of our public investment in education. It says nothing about inequality and the way that, that our aggregate investment in education is distributed. And it is easy to go to public schools in this country where the word lavish would be the last word on your mind. Um, if we were to do anything like the policy prescriptions recommended in the case against education, the people who would be hurt the most are the people who have the least. The students who come from impoverished backgrounds, minority students, immigrant students, first-generation students, the students who are most sensitive to the need for education because they don't get it from the non-educational part of their lives. There's a lot of extremely good and convincing research around this. Um, if you grow up in a household where your parents are very well educated and you're surrounded by education, the marginal effect of an education on you is like not as big as if you don't get any of those things. And it really is formal schooling, publicly subsidized schooling that by definition your family can't afford that makes much more of a difference in whether you'll have any kind of fighting chance to, to succeed as a citizen or as a worker in this country. A lot of the book also is really an argument, I think, with other economists. Um, I'm not an economist, um, so I'm going to limit the extent to which uh, I have played some of the role in this debate and, and leave that for when you talk to Noah Smith or whomever. Um, but there are a few things that I want to mention. Um, the, the, Brian is at, at pains, I think, when he presents this argument to say that, you know, I'm not, say, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's all signaling, I'm not saying I'm a signaling purist, but the book is written as an attack on, quote, human capital purists. I, so I don't think anyone really disbelieves the existence of signaling. I don't think that people are saying that the sheepskin effect is a fantasy that doesn't exist. I think uh, the consensus is probably that signaling is maybe something like 20% of the value of a credential. Uh, Brian's uh, argument or supposition is that it's more like 80%. Although I think it's worth noting that in a book that is long and very involved, this book does not actually have a formal argument that's, that brings you to 80%. It is, to some extent, a large extent, the author's intuition 
um, that is wildly divergent from the consensus in the field of economists who are, you know, frankly, not always the most like liberal, touchy-feely people. Um, so let me, to kind of advance the economic part of this argument a little bit, and then to kind of leave us with a question um, that will be sort of grounded in economics, because I think that is the heart of this book. Um, let me sort of start by, I'm just going to quote um, from an economist, Mike McPherson, um, who uh, uh, wrote this recently, actually, about the book. Um, he talked about, he says, my favorite example, basically the case for education is the work of Nobel laureate Theodore Schultz on the evolution of the family farm in the United States. For centuries, the basic technology of farming was fixed, consisting mainly of horses and plows. Farm families had little interest in schooling their children, for young people needed only to watch and copy what their parents did. Going to school was a distraction, not a productive activity for a farmer. But as successive technological innovations, the internal combustion engines, motors, fertilizer came on the scene, a curious thing happened. Farmers with more education began outperforming those with less. This was not a US phenomenon. Schultz and his students showed that educated French Huguenots outperformed local farmers in Latin America. Educated European immigrants to Israel outperformed those from Ethiopia. Why? It certainly wasn't because the wheat was keeping tabs on the farmer's educational credentials. All right, they weren't signaling to the plants. They were growing. It was becoming more productive. And moreover, and I think this is crucial, Schultz found that the effect of education on farmers' productive acti activity did not depend on whether their education was related to farming. Rather, Schultz argued the availability of new technology was disruptive to, tr to traditional practice, and those who had more education were better able to adjust to change and handle uncertainty. Schooling had endowed people with what Schultz called the ability to deal with disequilibria. So the implication is that even as you are exposed to all of these different subjects, and you take algebra, and you take trigonometry, and you take science, and you take a lot of things that an employer is not going to formally pay you to do, you are learning modes of thinking. You are learning perspectives on the world. You are learning how to process information, um, some formal, some informal, and it appears to all add up in a very profound and important way, even if we only define it in economic terms. Second piece of evidence, which Brian does address in the book, but in ways that I have questions about. So this is the question that I will leave, with, uh, leave us with today. Um, Eric Hanyashek, who is an economist at the uh, Hoover Institute in Stanford, a conservative economist, so I think should have good standing for the place in the room that we're in today. Eric Hanyashek is, in fact, the leading advocate of the policy position that you shouldn't just spend more money on K-12 schools and uh, assume they'll get better. He always takes the other side of that argument. And yet, Hanyashek has done a lot of research and a lot of writing about the effect on education on economic productivity at the national level. Um, and international comparisons are actually a really good way to think about this issue because um, whereas people are kind of people, no matter where you go, um, governments really aren't, right? So uh, we know where borders are. And the way that uh, government and schooling is organized inside distinct borders really varies quite a lot um, in ways that are very observable. And we also have a lot of economic data over a long period of time. Um, and what they found was that there is a strong and direct correlation between uh, education, educational levels and changes in economic productivity in nations. Um, and they note further that you can sort of measure how much education people get, but that doesn't really control for how good the education is. But now that we have a better infrastructure of international comparisons on test scores, if you look at international test scores, 
So it doesn't matter what the level is. We're looking at what students learn in a directly comparative way. The relationship is even stronger. It's very strong. It's very robust. Even if you control for things like openness to international trade and the security of property rights and other things that most people agree are fundamental to ed educational productivity, even if you throw that stuff in there, education levels have a profound, strong, and long-term multi-decade effect on the productivity of nations. And in fact, if you look at all of the nations that have invested in education and are productive, every single one of them did it by large public investments in education without fail. Now, Brian does uh, acknowledge this Hanushek study, I think to his credit. I think the book is very comprehensive. I think Brian does a great job of trying to acknowledge and lay out all the people that he is arguing against, which are many. Um, but, he, but his response, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this because I want to get this right. Um, to the Hanushek study is to say, um, why then do test scores look so potent as predictors of national economic growth? That's the sort of pr predicate to the question. Probably because they reflect <clears throat> a deeper and far less malleable ability that promotes success in virtually every line of work, colon, intelligence. So this is the argument of the case for education, against education in a nutshell. Um, what Brian is saying is that what you think is education is not education. It's just signaling something that education didn't create, that was something that was already there. Um, so my question is, are you saying that you think there are large underlying genetic differences in the basic IQ of northern European countries compared to southern European countries? Because the, the best international comparisons we have are from the PISA and the OECD, which consistently find very high scores in places like Finland, um, and lower scores in places like Portugal and Italy and Greece and things like that. So is that what you're saying? And if you're not saying that, what are you saying? Thanks very much. All right, well, uh, it's my job to ask questions, so I don't know where you get off doing that, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, go ahead and answer that. If you have any other sort of rebuttal you want to offer, that's fine. I'll just tell everybody I am going to forego questions of my own, because I'm guessing there are a lot out here. So when you're done, we'll go to questions from the audience and also uh, those people who are watching or who are on Twitter. Uh, sure. So let me just take the official question first, and then I'll go over the, some of the other items. Uh, so, you know, so, you know so, so, am, I, am I saying that all the differences between countries in intelligence are, are, are genetic? Um, no. Um, you know, what does cause differences between countries? Well, there's a lot of things. So it could be genes, could be education, or could be anything else in the world. All right. What are some of those things? Well, it could be nutrition, could be sanitation. Uh, there, you know, there's lots of possibilities actually in the uh, book that I'm writing right, right now, uh, which is a nonfiction uh, graphic novel on the economics of immigration. I go over international adoption and just see how much of a benefit that international adoption gives you. Uh, and it does seem that, you know, that, that being moved from a very poor country to, say, Sweden leads to big increases in intelligence. So again, not all genetic by any means. Uh, but again, just to say, well, if you don't think education is the cause of difference in intelligence, then you might, you know, then it's genetics. Like, there's lots of possibilities here. So, you know, like, you know, the obvious one is that richer countries uh, create much better circumstances. So, in the same way that intelligence can cause wealth, wealth can cause intelligence. Uh, so, so there is that. Uh, you know, on Hanushek in general, uh, I mean, you know, so, I mean, 
you know, like this was acknowledged, but I, but I think it was kind of, it was a bit fuzzy. So again, like what Spahniushek specifically doesn't say is that education levels in the normal sense are causing better economic results. What he's saying is that test scores cause it, and he is specifically not convinced that just pouring money into education has much effect on test scores. So important to keep that in mind, and also just pouring more years of education, he's also not convinced has much effect on test scores. Uh, in terms of some of the of, of the other of the other comments. Um, so I mean, like, like I totally understand that you might look at education right now and say there's so many better ways that we could be doing things. And I totally agree that there are much better ways to be doing things. For example, foreign languages. They should be taught by immersion. It's the only way anyone ever really learns a foreign language in a classroom is you go into the German classroom and they say, kind English here, kind English. That's how you learn, all right? Very, very rarely done, especially in K through 12, which is when most kids are actually doing their foreign language. But again, so I look at this and say, look, if there's something that obvious, that if you want kids to actually learn a foreign language, then you do immersion, and yet they're not doing it, this suggests that there's something very messed up about the system, that you can keep take, take, taking taxpayer money and using highly ineffective techniques of teaching year after year. And again, this is the kind of thing where I say, if you want taxpayer money, fix yourself first, and then we'll come back and see whether you're doing a good job. Don't just keep giving the money based upon promises, which is, again, so, so much of what we do. Uh, let's see, so uh, the, you know, this cramped view of education you're talking about, and like I said, I agree that it is a cramped view. Unfortunately, it is actually almost everyone's view. You know, even people who spend years and years studying history or foreign languages or civics in school, in adulthood, they have almost no interest in it and know next to nothing about it. So, I mean, again, it's a hard truth. But just to say that, you know, like, like, it, like because it would be really great if people actually understood history, it is worthwhile to spend, to spend three years in high school teaching them history, even though we know hardly anyone knows any of it. Again, that seems to me to be very odd. Like you could say, let's redouble our efforts and make, and make them really learn it. But again, that's something where the amount of investment would be, would be so great. It just doesn't seem very realistic to think about doing it. Again, it would be one thing if right now we spent three weeks on history and then I said people hardly know anything and he said, well, let's spend more money on it. All right, that makes sense. But if you're already spending three years and you have almost nothing to show for it, then that's when I say, hmm, it seems like this really is some money that has been quite poorly spent. Um, let's see. Uh, now, on this point of forgetting, uh, you know, so you know, you know, saying that, sure, it's just hard to know what people are really gonna need to know in the future, so it makes sense to go and teach them a bunch of things and they're gonna forget a bunch of them. That's totally sensible. Uh, here's a little problem. Uh, most of the stuff that I, was that, you know, that I was mentioning on the list of things that there's really not much need to teach, almost no one uses them. It's not like 20% of Americans need to know a foreign language and we don't know who, and then we teach them all, and then that way people have it when they need it. As I said, like under 1% of Americans claim to speak a foreign language, to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school after two years. This is not that we are wisely going and covering our bases to make sure that everyone is prepared for all the likely possibilities. Rather, this is more like we have a bunch of people that are monitoring the corners of the outfield where the balls never come, right? So, it's, you know, so we, you know, like it, it's easy to say, let's, you know, let's, prepare, let, let's prepare for all eventualities, but again, you know, like the system that we have really prepares people for a bunch of things that almost never turn out to be useful. So it's not, I don't think it really makes much sense to say that uh, it was still a worthwhile investment considering things from, from the outset. Uh, let's see, now in terms of the distributional effects. So I do have a section on social justice and my proposals in the book. And again, you know, like, like it's so easy when you're going and thinking about cutting to think about the kid that would have really benefited from college who now doesn't get to go because we listened to me and Brian. 
right? Uh, what I say is, you know, think about that kid, yes, but also think about all of the people that would have been perfectly employable without a high school degree in 1940 who are now considered not unemployable. The stigma against them is so much greater precisely because education levels has ri have risen. So when, in general, whenever you think about any policy, you shouldn't just think about how it would hurt one highly visible individual. You should think about the, the overall effect. And the overall effect is the more education people have, the more you need. So again, in 1940, you might have said, once we get high school graduation rates up to 80%, everything's going to be great. Well, it's not great because when, when education levels are that level, you need to get a college degree to impress employers to the same degree that a high school degree used to. So again, you know, I see like, you know, like, like if you really want to have a socially just society, shouldn't we be thinking about ways that people can get job training without having to spend a whole lot of years studying something that isn't really relevant to what they actually want to do with their lives? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, and I think I will stop there and just open up to questions. Okay, great. Uh, I have one anecdote, which probably doesn't tell us anything, but I, I took a lot of German and lived in Germany for a little while, and people would always say to me, uh, kein Deutsch, uh, speak uh, English because your German is terrible. Um, so I don't know what that tells us about the education system, but nobody wanted to speak German with me. Uh, so uh, let's uh, raise your hand if you, are, if you have a question. We have... Uh, I see one micro, two microphones. I'll call on you. I'm going to try and go back and forth in the room, and then from time to time, I'm also going to go on my phone and take questions from Twitter. But we'll start right over here with that young man right there. All right. So the high school I went to was uh, connected with a vocational school, which taught stuff like uh, culinary arts and uh, job preparation for specific fields. Do you think we should be investing more into stuff like that, which like? let students choose what they want to, you know, expertise in and get prepared to join the job force or something along those lines? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I've got a whole chapter on vocational education. I think it's greatly undervalued. Of course, you know, the usual view among upper, upper middle class people is no kid of mine is going to do that. But of course, what if that kid of yours is going to go and spend three years worth of tuition and then drop out? Maybe vocational education would have been a better option for that kid. Yeah, so, and you know, you know, like, you know, like, like, so when, if you go and just read what people who work in vocational education say, you know, a lot of it is very obvious, which is a lot of kids hate academic education with every fiber of their being. They find it incredibly boring. Of course, researchers have trouble relating to this because they've always been the opposite. But just look, but just look at the kids' faces. They hate listening to some windbag lecture at them, and they want to do something practical. And you know, like, so like, if you have a kid who actually is interested in learning plumbing or to be an electrician or something like that, it seems like a way better use of taxpayer money. And again, people always want to think, but what if that kid who becomes a plumber could have become, uh, could have become the next Einstein? All right, I guess that could happen. But what about if the kid that could have, you know, that could have become a plumber, he, like, since that option is denied to him, instead he winds up dropping out of school and going to jail? How about that for a hypothetical? Which, by the way, is a lot more likely than the Einstein hypothetical. So yes. Yep. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I think we ought to both invest in and improve uh, vocational education. In fact, um, New America, where I work and direct the education program, has a whole program called the Center for Education and Skills at New America. We've got five people working full time, um, working to improve, uh, in some ways, non-traditional pathways through the education system to credentials that lead to careers, where you don't have to necessarily get a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree. So we're doing a lot of work around apprenticeship programs, which we think are actually widely used in Europe, hardly used at all in the United States. Um, a very kind of interesting issue now, some interest from the present administration um, about that. Um, we don't think that it has to be, and ought not to be a kind of irrevocable choice though. 
about whether or not you go into vocational education or whether you have the opportunity to pursue other kinds of education. Um, the trap sometimes is that in the short term, you can make some good choices uh, that will get you a better job and more money, but then you sealing out because you can't get into management. Um, because a lot of the managerial classes are reserved for people with um, higher credentials. Some of that is probably credentialism, but some of it is not. Um, it's not all signaling by any means. Um, so one suggestion that we have and that we've promoted is that there's kind of this <coughs> really irrational uh, practice in higher education which says <coughs> you have to take your general education in the first two years and, and you specialize in the last two years. And almost all of that special specialization is sort of career focused in one way or the other. Um, so you can go to a, a, a community college and take two years of general ed, who knows if it's good or not, often it's in the middle, um, and then transfer and do your last two years and get a bachelor's degree. What you can't do is go to a community college and take two years of technical education, transfer those 60 credits, and then do your general ed requirements for the last two years. Um, so that's the kind of policy change where we think it would both uh, create more opportunities for people to pursue vocational education, but not shut them off from other kind of op educational opportunity opportunities that are not sort of purely job-oriented, or not those job-oriented. Great, okay, so we'll go over to this side now. Um, this man right here, uh, second row. Uh, I enjoyed your talk, and I also want to say I enjoyed your previous book about having more children very much. Oh, great, um, did you have any more? I, 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 had well, I have five, so. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd like your reaction to two arguments in favor of education. One I actually heard by, from a Michigan professor, which is it keeps young people out of the job market, so it doesn't have older people who are paid more don't have as much unemployment because the people are in, young people are in school instead of in the job market. But the second, more serious one is the, the core knowledge idea, that it's important for the fabric of our society that people have a set of references, cultural references that they understand such as knowing who Noah is or knowing what the Big Bang Theory is and that you don't have to explain that to people every single time and that's what is, is it important. That's part of what our culture is and people need to have that core knowledge in, in order to function well as members of our society. Uh, yeah, on the first point that education keeps, uh, keeps young people out of the job market is totally true, but it's a bad thing, right? So again, like, you know, basic point of, you know, imagine that everyone started retiring at 40. Would this go and make it easier for people to get a job? Yes, but who's gonna support all the people that are retiring at 40? Same thing with young people just on the other side. Sure, if people don't get a job until they're 30 years old, is it make it easier to get a job for people over 30? Yeah, but who's supporting them, right? So, you know, like, you know my, my general rule but for- But we are, in fact, yeah. having a, a, a crisis right now of, of people who are older on the job market who have skills that don't match what's needed in, in greater technology. And so, uh, you know, there is some, argument, economically even, to keeping those people employed. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, so like my, my number one economic lesson for everyone, if there's one thing I teach everyone about economics is just to keep your eye on production. If something increases total production, it is enriched society. If something reduces total production, it is, it is impoverished society. Uh, there's always distributional factors going on, but those are obvious. But this point of keep your eye on the ball of production, I think, you know, does clarify almost everything. And, yeah, so like having more people will like, be idle. Right, is something that, uh, you know, like it, it is a genuine effect of education, but I think, it's, I think it's pretty clearly a bad effect. On this point on the core knowledge that it's vital for society this knowledge be universally shared, I said, wow, that's too bad because we don't have it. 
right? <laughs> um, now, on the good news is that, well, society seems to be holding together so far without this allegedly core knowledge really being that widely shared. Again, just like saying, look, can democracy survive if everybody doesn't understand the basics? Apparently, because everybody doesn't understand the basics. In fact, knowledge of the basics is, is, is pretty poor. That, that's, yeah. that's kind of an exaggeration. I mean, oh, even though yeah. it, I, I certainly... Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I know I said that we could do comments and things, but we do have to move mm -hmm. to other people. And feel free to accost him after the yeah, event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm actually, uh, I'm going to go to Twitter. Is that, were you done with your end? Did you have something you want to say before I go to yeah, Twitter? Well, I just, uh, uh, a point of clarification. The, the core knowledge argument is not the humanist argument, at least as advanced by E.D. Hirsch and people who have made it. I think it's often mistaken as kind of a, uh, an argument that there are, you know, everybody should just have studied the classics for their own sake. The core knowledge argument, which I think is actually quite germane to this discussion, is that you can't learn practical things if you don't know the things that everybody knows because that collective knowledge is built into the fabric of our dialogue and the way that we talk about things. Um, so, like, go Google Edie Hirsch and look at a few of these things where just, you'll pick out an SAT question. There's no way to get it right if you, like, don't understand what baseball is. So even if you hate baseball, you sort of need to understand certain kind of sports to get the metaphors that basically are the, the way that we communicate with one another. And that's true for like virtually everything. So it's not the same as the humanist argument. All right, real quick, then I have a question, sort of a comment, and a question from Matt on um, Twitter. He only, he calls himself at Matt Education, so he probably knows a lot about this topic. Um, but it says, certifications are used in many technical fields. In computer science, sometimes more value is placed on certs versus degrees. Uh, one, I'm wondering if that's true, but also, could this trend expand to other fields, especially since college degrees are so expensive and certs are much cheaper? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have not done much research on this specifically. I have talked to a lot of people in the IT field and you know, like the usual view from people who actually think about what they've seen rather than repeating what they've read somewhere is that IT has gotten much more credentialist over time. In the 70s and 80s, you could become a programmer just by being self-taught, and now it's very hard. Uh, so, you know, so, I mean, there are top places that will sometimes hire people who have just won programming contests and things like that. But again, when I've asked people, so how many people does Google hire, say, who have won programming contests but don't have credentials? There's like, like five people. How many people do you hire who have fancy credentials? Like a thousand. All right, so you have to be way better to get in through these backdoor routes, but they are possible. And like, and you know, like one of the nice things that Kevin has, has done is try to point out ways in which things could change. And I hope they do change, but I think he's probably so far about as disappointed in me and how much they have changed. Um, disappointment. <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, it, it, it seems like when there are, there's a lot of pressure from the labor market um, that the private sector will respond. So I have a friend, for example, who um, went from being having my kind of job to taking a 10-week class in data science at this place called General Assembly right here in DC. It is essentially an unaccredited trade school. Gets no public subsidies at all. Um, no accreditation. You just go there and, and take on faith that you're going to learn something. And he walked out of that into like five job offers because Basically, the whole like uh, uh, defense contractor industry here in Washington, D.C. has a ravenous demand for people who know how to analyze data. Um, we, you can overlearn from examples like that, however. You know, that's, that's not most jobs. That's not most people. Um, so I think as we think about it and my colleagues think about it at New America, um, what we should think about is rather than just like discarding the old degree structures, find ways to embed some of those new credentials along the way. So if you're in the middle of a two-year program um, that kind of terminates in an associate's degree, 
Um, one way that maybe we can kind of get past this sheepskin effect where if you take 95% of the program and drop out, you're screwed, which is true. Um, pick up a real credential that actually has labor market value and is recognized every semester as you pick up distinct knowledge and skills. So we don't need to choose between them. We can actually do both. Great. Okay, we're going to try and go in the middle now because I've been to both sides. Um, well, we'll go right here for ease of access, right in the front, but then we'll definitely get to some of the back rows. Um, first, just a comment. I completely agree with you on the um, fact that uh, learning languages in school is a waste of time. Uh, I studied two languages in, in high school and don't speak a word of them anymore. I learned two other languages through immersion, and I speak them fluently right now. So you're, nice. you're absolutely right. Uh, but my question is, are you, um, uh, I haven't read your book, but are, is, is, is your main argument mainly uh, on, the, on the substance, against the substance of current education or against publicly financed education? Are you against publicly financing any education at all? Uh, right. So, I mean, one general point. So I have been in public schools, I've been in private schools, and honestly, I don't see very much difference in the curriculum. So while it would be ideologically convenient for me to say public school's bad, private school's good, that just doesn't seem to fit the facts to me. Uh, now, in terms of what can actually be done, well, I mean, like, so people are spending their own money on, on something that's, that's not very socially valuable. It's a lot harder to do much about it. But if you're spending taxpayer money on something that's not socially valuable, so look, the whole argument for spending public money on it is supposed to be that socially valuable. So given that you are, like, this directly contradicting the rationale, that seems like the place to start. Uh, so again, so while, I mean, I could have written my book in a world where there's no public funding of education, but yeah, I think it's much more pressing in a world where there's almost a trillion dollars worth of public money on the side of the status quo, which does seem so dysfunctional. Oh, you know, so what I'll say is, you know, it would be a lot better. And again, like, you know, the whole argument of the book is just focusing on public money being spent on stuff that's not socially useful. Uh, you know, so like, like, you know, if you go and read the dialogues, I do get into deeper philosophical questions. But, you know, I say, you know, that's not really germane to the argument. You could be all in favor of public education in principle, but still think my book point, uh, points the way to a, to a much better, to a good way to save taxpayers a lot of money. But yeah, I mean, like, of course, there, if, if you do want to read it from a radical libertarian point of view, uh, there are several lines in there that will allow you to do so, but uh, I, don't want, I don't like to limit my audience to five people. You know, I... Well, there are more than five radical yes, libertarians. Yes, yeah, yeah, well. Uh, right. Kevin, do you want to? 5,000. No, good. Okay, so now let's go toward the man sort of uh, almost toward the back. I wish I could read the name tags from here, but there's no way. Uh, yeah, right there. You can stand up maybe. You know who you are. All right, good. But you've got to wait for the microphone or the people online won't be able to hear you. Uh, not having read your book yet, have you, do you have anything to say about music or sports in schools? And with a little context, I've noticed um, that what they, they have a lot of, um, I don't know, not tangential, but really central effects, positive effects on children in terms of learning self-control, learning teamwork, learning um, contributing to something, you know, putting a play together. There's a lot of there's a lot that goes into that discipline and and I'm not going to go into it all but I think you I hope you I think you can appreciate that what role does that play because I'm not going to be an actor right my child who was in a play and got a lot out of it is not going to be an actor um, a lot of people who play football in high school are not going to be in the NFL so where does that fit into your um, discussion 
Right. So, I mean, the main thing about music and sports is that they're great for kids that actually like them. And usually those are the kids that are prominent and we can easily see them, like the high school football captain. He likes football. He's enjoying it. Uh, however, I, in the book, I do want to speak up for a large silent group of kids who hate those things. I remember when I went to my, my son's kindergarten class and they had a dance performance for us and the girls all seemed to be enjoying it, but the boys look completely miserable and, like, like, and humiliated. And no one's ever going to speak up for them if I don't. So, look, why do they have to learn dancing? They hated it. They were unhappy. They're not, you're not changing their minds. So why, is it that have to, why does it have to be required? If it's just something that kids are allowed to do in school, then you know, you know, it seems fine. In terms of the, of the discipline, discipline or other teamwork that you might be teaching them, uh, so you know, like, like, you know, I think that, you know, that makes sense not just for those things, but for a great many things that are going on in school. Uh, which, again, I would say is probably one you know, uh, you know, the best case for education is just to say, well, it's teaching them at least some discipline and social, social skills and so on. Uh, my reply to that argument is, well, compared to what? School teaches you a lot of discipline and social skills compared to staying home alone playing video games. How about compared to having a job? Right? And I say, actually, you probably get better discipline and social skills from actually, uh, from actually going and just you know, getting a part-time job than you would from getting these other things. So you know, one other downside of music and sports that's worth pointing out is they do fill, fill many kids' heads with, with, with unrealistic ambitions about what they could do. And you, know, you might say everyone gets over. It takes kids a long time to get over unrealistic ideas about being a professional athlete when they're not even very good in their, in their own school or to be a professional musician. I mean, I remember when, when I was a kid, I'd say over half of, my, of the boys that I knew thought they were actually going to be professional athletes. And they put a lot of their energy and hopes into that. And when it finally turned out it's not going to happen for them, well, you know, it seemed like you actually did go and waste so a good chunk of their ambition and hope on, like, on just something that was, that was just ill-conceived from the beginning. Right? And of course, everybody, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. Actually, you can't. Uh, so, so you know, like, you know, like, you know, I think it's better if people do focus uh, energy on realistic ambitions rather than pie in the sky. But yeah, you know, like, so you know, music and sports are great for some kids. Uh, I mean, I know my kids mostly just hated them, and I kind of hated them too. So, I mean, I, my, one of my things I'm most grateful to my parents for is they never made me learn an instrument, and so I love music. If they had, if they had forced me to do it, I think I'd be just like my dad, who who cringes at the very sound of classical music because he had ten years of enforced piano lessons. He hates it, and like, thank you for not doing that to me, Dad, because I love it. It's funny because you talk about unrealistic expectations about being good at sports or the ability to speak German, and that describes me to a T. It's like, <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I want to expand the point a little bit, though. Uh, we ought not defer to the judgment of small children when it comes to what they need to learn. We shouldn't. They don't know what they're talking about. I have a small child. Um, she has no idea about the world out there. She doesn't understand sort of what you need to know and what comes after that and what comes after that and what comes after that. There are things that she likes. There are things that she doesn't. If it was up to her, she would spend three hours a day reading books about fairy princesses. Um, I'm pleased as punch that she likes to read um, and she enjoys these books and it's a way for her to do that, but that's all she wants to do. Uh, our job as adults is to guide children through the learning process. That's maybe the most important job as adults that we have, particularly if we pretend to have any influence over the education system. Sure, you can think of examples where you push too hard. Um, sure, you can think of examples where you maybe over-institutionalize things. Um, but to kind of go to this like libertarianism for kindergartners 
just seems tremendously unwise. And, and frankly, like we've tried that in some places. Mostly it's been done by people who are very kind of left-wing idealistic and they have this idea that, you, that all children are natural learners, they're all scientists, you just kind of let them go, they'll discover these things, we don't need a curriculum, we'll just let them decide. Those things never work, they are disasters. Uh, schools have a curriculum for a reason. Um, curricula are enforced by adults for a reason. Um, and, and most fundamentally, the job of any good teacher or any good educational system is not just to react to interest, but to create interest, to kindle interest. You can't tell by the first few times where somebody you know, grapples with a musical inter instrument whether they have musical talent, uh, you know, whether or not they'll uh, you know, uh, want to do this in the long run. And the same thing with sports, you know, I ran track all the way through uh, high school. Never had any aspirations to be a professional runner because there aren't that many professional runners. And most people who are in sports are not in sports that lead anywhere to any kind of job. But what it did actually was build certain kind of habits of physical fitness, which were really important, which I've carried through my entire life and I would you know, take all the way back to my schooling. And the same thing with music, honestly. You know, very few professional musicians. A love of music is something that doesn't come from nowhere, particularly certain kinds of music. All right. Yeah, you know, just a quick, quick comment on that. So, I mean, in terms of like how libertarian to be with your kids, so for literacy and numeracy, I would make my kids do it whether they want to or not because it's super useful, and even if you find it boring, you need it. On the other hand, all the other stuff that kids are being made to do, that's where I think it's important to find out whether they have any interest in it because if you don't like it, then, you're not, then the only reason to do it would be for the future, and like if it's not in your future, then why torture them? But like, what, how would a small child know whether or not they should learn history? How would, would they a small make child know? I mean, how, like you would trust the judgment of a, of a kindergartner about whether they want to About learn whether history? he finds history interesting? Sure. I mean, you can come back to him when he's in third grade. Is it still boring? Sixth grade, still boring. Ninth grade, still boring. You know, so you know, like, it doesn't have to be just one chance, but there's a lot of stuff that kids know they don't like. And, you know, and in terms of whether I would trust a parent or whether a child about whether they would ever find a subject interesting, I would trust the kid. Kids know what they like. You know, not, sometimes they change, but parents don't listen. All right, well, let's go to the adult interest for a second. Um, I think her name is Denise. Sorry, Denise, if I'm pronouncing that wrong. But she says, your argument about starving education because there's no way to reform it, aren't colleges, like public schools, a great employment project with all the admin books, food, and construction? Where will all those jobs go? All right. Yeah, great question. So remember what I was saying about always keep your eye on production? Exactly. All right, so, you know, this is the classic argument at the end of a war. We can't demilitarize. We can't go and reduce the size of the army. What will they all do? But every wise country does it, and what do they do? Something or other that's productive. It's hard for to actually say what it's going to be, but the world, the world is full. You know, there's unlimited wants. There's limited resources. There's tons of things that you could do with people. If, you know, so, you know, if I were not a college professor, which you perish the thoughts, but there's tons of other things I could do. I don't want to. Taxpayers have given me this great dream job for life. But you know, if people actually listen to me and it's taken away from me, I'll find something to do, and so will all the other people. All right, boy, I wish we had more time. We still have some time here, but I got a whole bunch of questions. So I should go back over to this side because I'm trying to bounce all around the room. And I'll try and get at least one more Twitter question in here, too. So there is a difference between how education is viewed depending where in the country or in the world that you live. In the DC metro area, education and what you are saying, Brian, is education is viewed as a signaling issue and where you went to school and what your grades were are very important. But move outside of some of the major metropolitan areas and that's not necessarily the case. So how do you then look at education as being not important or important 
based on regions. Yeah. I mean, so obviously the, the, uh, the fraction of kids that are going on to college at the end of high school varies, but I don't know any part of the country where, where, like, where, where like you say only like 5% of the kids are going on to college. Maybe you find a very small area. I'd say, you know, the intensity of the signaling varies, but I, it's a ubiquitous force all, all over the country. There are people, the, the kids, you know, kids and their parents know if you want to go and get a good job, you've got to go and excel in the system or else a lot of doors close for you. I, I mean, I, I think... Uh... The polling information that I've seen where you ask parents, um, what are your aspirations for your kids? If you go back to like 1980, that was, was pretty variable, which I think uh, uh, reflected the economy that people who were parents of young children in 1980 grew up in, which is kind of the 1940 to 1970 economy, where you know, there were lots of ways necessarily that you could go on and uh, support a family and build a career um, without getting a college degree. If you ask parents now, it's like 90%. And there are not a lot of variations, not by race, not by class, there is a, a, a total unanimity or close to it, um, whatever you think 90% is. Um, it does not really vary all that much in terms of the importance of college. Now, you can take that both ways. You can either think that it's an enormous collective delusion, which I think is sort of the case against education, or you can think that uh, uh, people learn things in college and people have figured that out. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, do we have somebody over on, we've got a lot of people over on this side. I'm going to go sort of the back, uh, man with kind of white hair. Uh, if you'll just keep walking back, I'll, he's going to stand up. Go ahead, sir. I think you know who you are. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, I hear uh, your disappointment that people misunderstand your commitment to the uh, humanist ideals. Uh, Maybe you contributed to it by the choice of the title of your book. Why didn't you call it the case against schooling instead of the case against education? Yes. Right. So, I mean, first reason is I never like to make a semantic argument. So if there's a word that commonly means what I'm talking about, I just like to run with it rather than trying to reform language. Uh, so, you know, like me, my views are controversial enough without telling people you have to start using words in, in, in my way. Uh, but the other thing is that, I mean, I, I, I really am saying that there is something fundamental about education that is not, that is not as good as people think, namely, there's all, like a motive for education, one of them is always just to impress others and to show off and distinguish yourself from the pack. And I'm saying that this is a reason why education just, is just never going to be as good as people think that it is. Um, so, I mean, you know, those, those are my reasons. I know there is the Mark Twain quote about I never let my schooling interfere with my education, and I appreciate the philosophy but I didn't want to go and argue Mark Twain on the cover of the book. Okay, I'm gonna to go to one more from Twitter and then I'm gonna hopefully get one more from the audience. This one asked one of my favorite questions. Uh, are most colleges becoming something like degree mills in the way they have become a conveyor belt for useless education? That's from Rach. Um, strangely, no. So here's the thing is, you know, even though you may hear a lot about how easy college is, the number of hours college kids work on their studies is shockingly low. And yet, a lot still manage not to finish somehow. Uh, it's, uh, I will admit, it's confusing. And if I were their parents, I would be saying, how can you not have succeeded? They asked so little of you. And yet, you know, like one of the simplest ways of finding out how hard is something is just to see how many people who try it succeed. So, you know, like a very, pretty standard number is about 40% of full-time college students manage to finish a four-year degree in four years. 
55% can do a four-year degree in five years. 60% can do a, a four-year degree in six years. So there are a lot that somehow manage not to finish. Sometimes it's so they're changing majors, or they just get bored, or they just lose interest. But again, if they were real diploma mills, then we would just be passing them all through. I am sometimes kind of amazed that they aren't more like diploma mills, and I think the, re the real answer is there's just enough professors out there who have enough professional pride to say, I'm not gonna pass you just because it makes my life easier. I mean, just two things. Uh, sometimes people don't finish their degrees because they can't pay for college. Yes, they won't let you come reason. back if you don't pay for tuition. Um, also, most students who are in college are not full-time students. They're not full-time residential students. They have lots of other things to do besides go to college. Um, they have jobs, they have families. That's the typical American college student, um, not someone who has no other job other than to be there uh, for 40 hours a week. Um, and a lot of people come from substandard K through 12 systems, which will become a lot more substandard if we stop subsidizing them. All right, so last one from the audience. So there's a lot of pressure on whoever I call on to have a fantastic question because it'll be the last thing anyone remembers and you may carry it over for more than a day. Uh, so we're gonna go all the way to the back. Please wait for the microphone so the folks online can hear you. I will hang around to answer all questions anyone wants to ask until Cato kicks us out. Jim Lowen, I wrote a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, so obviously I have mixed views of, uh, high, of education. Uh, but I want to submit to you that we all have a job that you haven't given much attention to, all of us in this room, in fact, all of us in the country, and that is the job of bringing into being the America of the future. Uh, that is our job as an American. We may have a different job as a bus driver, but that's our job as an American. And I would suggest to you that we do need some learning for that job. I, uh, we need, for example, some history, some sociology, uh, well taught. And I'm going to go with you and even beyond you in terms of your critique of how it is now taught and what people don't remember after they leave college or after they leave high school. You're absolutely right there. But that goes to the uh, critique then. Uh, we do need to do it better rather than to not do it. Comment? Sure, I guess I would just turn the question around. So in your view, what is the difference between giving kids you know, no historical civics education and giving them the education they're currently getting? Do you think that this marginal difference of what we're giving them is actually making things much better? Or would they, would they have to just be a giant improvement, a moonshot, to really make much, much difference? Uh, oh, kind of have data on that. Uh, there are uh, high schools, in fact, entire school systems, that teach history or social studies well. Um, and there are more, but not most, uh, not most, but not uh, all, that teach it badly. And so it can be done well, and I think it should be done well, and, and we just have to emulate the maybe 30 or 40 percent who now do it well. Great. Did you have anything you want to say on that or respond to the last No, just to think, I think that that's an important point. Um, any problem that we see in our education system, most of them somewhere, somewhere has solved already. Um, but we, it's a very large system, it's very ambitious, particularly in this country, it's very decentralized. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that mass centralization is the answer. Um, there are lots of ways to think about uh, improving the way that information is dis diffused. There are lots of ways to think about increasing standards and accountability. Um, some of those are market-based, some of those are regulatory-based, some of those are subsidy-based. Um, but we ought not be hopeless about it. Um, we shouldn't say uh, there's no reason to think that we can do better. There are lots of reasons to think that we can do better. The hard part is doing better, but I think that's the challenge we have. 
All right, great. Well, I want to thank Brian, first of all, for coming and for his book, uh, which is available outside, The Case Against Education. Kevin, I want to thank you very much for your fantastic comments and I think a great uh, back and forth. I want to thank all of you for coming today and everybody who is watching online. We got a lot of Twitter questions I couldn't get to and I apologize for that. I also want to do uh, one programming note. Tomorrow at noon we're having another great education event for this book, Islamic Education in the United States and the Evolution of Muslim Nonprofit Institutions. So everybody make sure you come back tomorrow at noon and then the last bit of news is we are all going to head out to the Winter Garden after this for refreshments and discussion and that Brian said he would stick around to take absolutely any question anybody wants to ask for as long as you want to stay here. Thank you very much. Thank you.